Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen Dutrolio Coakley. Today, we bring you a conversation between Sofia Magallanes and Angela Tarango on Angela's book regarding Native American Pentecostals. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. Hi, Angela. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you about your book, Choosing the Jesus Way, American Indian Pentecostals and the Fight for the Indigenous Principle. It's especially a great privilege to hear about Navajo Pentecostals from a historian's perspective, since it reflects both my cultural heritage and denominational background. Now that I get to pick your brain, I've been wondering, what drove you to research Pentecostalism and its interaction with Native people in their missionary work? That's a great question. Um, it really sort of initially happened accidentally for me. I was in graduate school at uh, Duke University, and I went in wanting to study Pentecostalism, American Pentecostalism specifically. And I worked with uh, Dr. Grant Wacker, who at the time was the uh, church historian, the American church historian at the Divinity School. And I took a class with him on the missionary impulse in America. And it was a great class. I met um, a lot of really interesting people in that class. I read a lot of interesting work. But when I was getting ready to write my seminar paper for the class, I said to Grant, um, uh, I said to him, I said, well, I don't know what aspect of Pentecostalism, you know, I want to write on. And he said, you know, there were a lot of, there's a lot of Native American Pentecostals. And I said, really? Because I haven't heard anything about them. Um, and as a historian, I've always been really interested in histories that are ignored, histories that are bypassed by groups, histories that are seen as sort of um, not part of the mainstream, right? And I've always been the sort of person that roots for the underdog. So I went to the Assemblies of God. Uh, they have an online sort of historical archive. And I searched on Native Pentecostals and I found quite a bit in the periodical articles. And I wrote a small seminar paper out of that. But then I realized after doing some more searches that there was a lot of stuff actually at the archives at Springfield um, in boxes. And I said to myself, well, maybe this is a dissertation. And that is, um, that's how I found my dissertation, quite literally, um, accidentally out of a piece of work from that class. In which ways did the Assemblies of God Pentecostalism express itself colonially? Yeah, so one of the things that I found when I went through the, the periodicals, um, so the Assemblies of God has a main periodical called the Pentecostal Evangel. Right. It started off being called the Christian Evangel, but by the time period that it moves into like the 1920s and the 1930s, it's known as the, the Pentecostal Evangel. And they um, would start putting articles uh, when people would go on these faith missions, right? Do you know what a faith mission is? I do, but can you please explain it for our listeners? Yeah, so a faith mission uh, is this idea that Pentecostals sort of took on after the great revivals of Azusa Street and other parts of the world, that um, they were called by God to go spread the word, and the world was ending, actually, really um, quickly. So you needed to do it fast, and you couldn't wait for funding or for some sorts of missionary uh, board to clear you. So these were people who would say that God called them to, say, let's say, China. And they would literally find the money to get on a boat to China, but they didn't have any other money 
for the mission or they didn't know where they were going or they didn't know how they were going to do it. They just went on faith. And that is what is what a faith mission is, is known as. So what happens is these white Pentecostals start undertaking these faith missions in the southwestern uh, United States, mostly uh, in California. It starts in the 1920s into the 1930s. And then later among groups in Arizona and New Mexico, such as the Apache and the Navajo um, in the 1930s. And these people would just sort of without any money necessarily for the assemblies, they would just go on mission. And they would work among native peoples to bring them the Pentecostal gospel. But um, they would write these letters back to the Assemblies of God in the Pentecostal Evangel. And they're full of this really horrible language, right? That the native people were dark, that they were dirty, that they were poor, um, that they had savage beliefs. Uh, they painted a really um, terrible picture of the Catholic Church, which had often been there for a very long time. Uh, the Southwest was colonized by Catholics. Um, and they would say that it was worse that they were in the Catholic church because they had rosary beads and they were praying to Mary and they didn't know what they were doing. And so these people are so deceived by heathenism. Uh, there's this language around this. It's, it's incredibly problematic. And I think in some ways it's an example of how, when you work on native American history, and you do it through the eyes of the colonists. That is to say, you, you use papers that were used by missionaries or by other groups that are, are dominant. You have to read it very carefully, knowing that this does not necessarily reflect what actually was going on. What it reflects is what that person thinks was going on. That does not mean that is what actually is happening. Um, and so I had to sort of learn to read this really carefully um, and the language doesn't change until the 1950s or so when some native leaders start writing in the Pentecostal evangel talking about their native culture, right? And they say, oh, we're not savages. This is, this is our culture. Um, and that's, that's an interesting counterpoint because it means they're aware of what's being said about them. Was there any subversion of this colonialism by the native people in their writing? Yes. Um, and like I said, in the Pentecostal evangel, they, native people would write articles about their history. Right. There's a great article um, written by a native uh, Pentecostal named John McPherson about the Cherokee Trail of Tears. Um, there's other ones written on the Navajo Long Walk. So these moments in native history that are not quite understood necessarily by the general public, if you're not from that area. Uh, other ones where they defend their culture, they defend their languages and they mm -hmm. defend um, certain aspects of their culture, usually their food, their language, their dress. These are things that they defended. The other ways that they would uh, subvert the authority of the Assemblies of God was that the native missionaries usually spoke languages. They usually spoke the native languages, right? And the white missionaries usually didn't. <laughs> um, and these native languages are very hard to learn. You, you, you essentially can't learn them unless you're growing up or with intensive study. Um, so I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a Navajo man named Charlie Lee, and he converted to the Assemblies um, of God when he was a young man. A Apache friend took him to a camp meeting. And Charlie Lee uh, was a very talented artist. And he went to Central Bible Institute. And so he goes to Central Bible Institute where he hears of Melvin Hodges, who was a Latin American uh, missionary and later a missiologist there, who spreads this idea called the indigenous principle. Right. And this idea of the indigenous principle is um, sort of it's very classic Pentecostal, but it tends not to be lived out. It, it's the big issue. And what Hodgins says is we have to be like Paul. We have to go. We have to plant churches and then we have to let the local people 
decide how they're going to run them. And if the local people, you know, are run a little bit differently, that's just kind of how it's going to look. And Melvin Hodges really calls out both the assemblies and Christianity in general for um, not being willing to take the missionary out of the equation, right? He says, oh, you guys leave these things in like mission stations and, and you're convinced the missionary is doing it the right thing and you way and you don't let people run their own churches. Charlie Lee absorbs this from Melvin Hodges, from reading it, from sort of um, meeting with him. And this becomes sort of his clarion call. He then goes back to the Navajo Nation and he asks the tribal council for a piece of land. And it's that's really telling because the Navajo Tribal Council in the 1950s, they conducted, well, they still conduct their business in Navajo. So a white missionary can't go and ask for a piece of land that they don't speak Navajo. So he went, he got the land, he started to, um, he built a church and then he starts preaching in Navajo. And the fact of it is nobody really knows what he's saying, right? Because it, 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 they can't police him. He's also in this very remote part of the world. Um, it, 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 at that time, it was very hard to get to northern New Mexico, uh, to Shiprock, uh, the Shiprock Farmington area where he was from. Um, you, you couldn't just, you know, even take a bus or even drive easily over there. Um, and so that isolation allows him to grow this idea of indigenous church. And he starts spreading it among other native leaders. Right. And then the idea starts to grow from mm. there. What got you interested in the history of indigenous people in general? So that happened, um, I think, because of my parents, um, specifically my father, who is um, we're Mexican-American and he's very proud of his indigenous roots. Um, and when I was a little girl, he took me to the reservations in Arizona and parts of New Mexico. And specifically, he took me to the Navajo reservation uh, so I could see it. Um, so I could see how people lived and also uh, my dad made jewelry on the side. So he would go to trade for, um, pieces of turquoise, right? So for his jewelry, so he preferred to buy it directly from people than pay, uh, exorbitant price that was marked up. And, um, they took me to Canon de Chez, which is often referred to as a mini Grand Canyon. It's in the corner of Arizona, right? It's in the four corners, right? Right up against New Mexico. And it's where the Anasazi ruins are. And th those are the predecessors of the Pueblo. And uh, you see these cliff dwellings and so forth. Well, there's this one Navajo family that controls the tours uh, in the canyon. And uh, the elder gentleman of the family put me sort of in the little tour jeep with my parents in the back. And then he took us through. And I don't know if he felt a kinship with us or what, but he told me this whole history that I had never learned school. I just never learned it. Um, nobody tells you, you know, you hear about the pilgrims, right? And the Indians are nice to them and they give them corn and they don't starve. And that's all you ever hear, right? That's the first Thanksgiving. Well, what you don't know is that Thanksgiving story is actually really twisted, really <laughs> fundamentally twisted and about power and about betrayal, about all of these things that they don't teach you in school. And the same with the Navajo people. They were sent on the long walk by the U.S. government that was trying to round them up because they impeded the progress of the, of the Transcontinental Railroad. That's what that was about. They wanted to run the railroad through the res. Native people didn't want it. And the government was like, nah. And so they sent them to Bosque Redondo in southern New Mexico. Miserable place. A quarter of the tribe died. And some of the people had tried to go into Canada Shade to hide because Canyon had tr traditionally been a place where they would retreat to. It's hard to find them. And um, Kit Carson and the government troops starved them out. They cut down the orchards. 
they didn't allow any food to come in and they just gave they had to surrender otherwise the whole groups of people would have died the elder told me this story and i had never heard of this and i was so angry I remember being, I was like nine years old and I was furious about this. I was furious about the injustice of the world. And I was furious, like, why is this not in the history book? Where, where is this? Um, and so that began my interest in Native American history. It also began my interest in making history, what I say is equal and accessible for all Americans. It tells the whole American story, right? Part of this story of Native Pentecostals is when we talk about Pentecostalism, uh, most people talk about white Pentecostalism. They talk about black Pentecostalism. Now they talk a little bit more about Latino Pentecostalism, but nobody knew anything about Native people that were Pentecostals when I wrote the book. Um, it was one of the first books published on it. Um, and so that's where that comes from. My, my father taking me there and hearing of this history and knowing that this history didn't exist, it sort of lit a fire under me when I was nine. That is a very interesting story, and I am so glad that you have gotten to write this untold history. When you were writing this, did you find that there is any retention of Native spirituality within the expression of Christianity and Pentecostalism? That's a great question. I, I didn't ask. And part of the reason for that was... I didn't feel it was fundamental to the argument of the book. Okay, the argument of my book was about power structures, mm-hmm. about ways that Native people take a uh, colonizing theology and then make it indigenous, right? This is a colonizing theology and they make it literally indigenous for them. But also, I I knew that there have been, and some anthropologists have undercovered that some Pentecostals um, go back and forth between uh, Native traditional belief and Native and uh, Christianity. On the Crow Reservation, there are very, uh, there's been a great book written by um, Mark Clatterbuck, who wrote about how Pentecostals also would sort of slide back and forth between Catholicism, Pentecostalism, and uh, traditional religion, right? So we know it's out there. I actually chose to not ask about it necessarily because I wanted to sort of protect Native people. I wanted to take the white gaze away from the idea that their religious practice is exotic and something to be studied, right, in the book. I wanted the book to be more about power and power structures. And I didn't ask about spirituality because I I wanted to also sort of protect the people that I, I spoke to. I didn't want the assemblies to turn around and know this book had been written and me turn over something and them to say, you are less Pentecostal. Right. You are not as Pentecostal as you should be. And therefore, we're going to say you shouldn't run your own churches. Right. I was really invested in the community not being harmed. Uh, And so for that reason, I didn't I didn't ask that question. What is the most surprising thing that you've learned after having conducted your research? Yeah. So the most surprising thing I learned was um, the second time I was in Springfield, Missouri, at the Islamist God Archives, a group of Native ministers came in to meet me. They were the leaders uh, within the Assemblies of God. And they walked in and they said to me, we have been praying that the Holy Spirit would send us a secular scholar from a secular university to tell our story. And we see that he sent you. And I don't think of myself as an instrument of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, I don't think of myself as, you know, I've been sent by God. Uh, it was a very, it really reminded me of the Pentecostal mindset, right? Mm-hmm. That the mm-hmm. mundane is miraculous. Yes. Right. And that and uh, what seems to be a simple action can be infused with the power of God. Mm. Um, and I thought it was really lovely. And they were very nice to me. They, they spoke with me. They were very kind with me. And um, that was just really surprising to see that the people that, you know, that you're writing about really uh, appreciated it in a way. And the other things was I, I, I got an email from Charlie Lee's granddaughter. And she said, well, you never met my grandfather, but you got him right. And I, I that was just such a wonderful feeling, right? Like I did, I did this job as a historian I managed to breathe life back into the story and I feel like yeah I did that and if the people who read this book they're native Pentecostal and they they find themselves in this history and you know the descendants of these people find themselves in it then I did something right then I then I wrote the book I wanted to write you've given us a lot to think about in particular about how we interact with our own spirituality and also our cultural backgrounds, as well as those of other people. Um, thank you so much for your this conversation and for your research. I look forward to uh, reading your next book. Thank you for having me. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.